For those who trust in God, in the pain of sorrow there is consolation. In the face of despair there is hope. In the midst of death there is life. Yet for those who struggle with the inability to conceive, who know the pain of losing a child before birth, or who have faced their infant's death at the time of birth, know that this season of mourning is often held inside, hidden and unseen. But God does not abandon us. On the other side of loss, an incredible story of resilience emerges. Death is never the whole story. The hope of new life persists. Of womb and tomb, prayer in time of infertility, miscarriage, and stillbirth is a resource for individuals, couples, and parish communities who wish to accompany those on their grief journey. Filled with stories, prayers, scripture, poems, and rituals, this book and accompanying music CD serves as a guide in creating prayer opportunities in a variety of settings. Visit GIA Publications today to order your copy. Together, let us bear witness to the Christian mystery that new life is born of the womb and of the tomb. Welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. My name is Zach Stahowski. And I am Matt Reichert. And we're excited to have you back for another episode of Open Your Hymnal. One of the things that has been really interesting for me in doing this podcast is finding out all of the different uh, interests our composers have outside of liturgical music uh, and just how multifaceted their careers are. Yeah, that's been something that I've noticed too, and I guess it should come really as no surprise. I mean, we've heard a lot about Beatles fans and the influence of pop music, the influence of classical music, musical theater, Um, and it shouldn't really be a surprise because, I mean, I suppose... Even if you think about your own musical taste, Zach, I mean, I'm sure they're pretty wide and varied. That's true, and it's also a lot out of necessity because it's hard to pay the bills just with liturgical music. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could, I could imagine that's true, you know. But, but I mean, I'm sure that's something that you still foster, and something that really was probably present from the beginning of your musical roots. Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, like I started as a classical violinist, and so just my interest in classical music, I think you can find uh, that influence in a lot of my own compositions. And I think you see that with a lot of our composers, things that they grew up listening to, things that they grew up playing, uh, often finds its way into their compositions. Yeah, and that's that's a thread that I'm glad that we're going to be able to explore a little bit more today with our guest, Paul Tate. Um, as we'll come to find out, Paul has a lot of different musical influences um, that that come out in his writing, especially musical theater, and I'm excited to explore that more. So please open your hymnals to By the Waters of Babylon. By the waters of Babylon. Hi, my name is Paul Tate. I am a liturgical composer and a lover of all kinds of music, living and working in Atlanta, Georgia. By the Waters of Babylon um, was written in or on the campus of the University of Georgia in 1993. Um, I had already been there several years as a student, got my bachelor's and my master's in music composition. 
But at the same time, <clears throat> I was going to NPM conventions and things like that, um, trying to improve my my tools as a music director at the parish level. And um, so since I was a trained composer, I naturally would be at these conventions finding myself um, listening to the other new music coming out and uh, eventually started writing some things of my own. And the first things that I, I put together were a collection of psalm settings encouraged by my friend and frequent collaborator, Deanna Light. She challenged me to write 10 psalm settings that, that year between um, years of my master's. Um, and so I wrote 20. I always like to overachieve. And what our plan was, was to put these psalm settings together um, into a package of sorts and present them to a publisher. So I was at, I think, number 19. And, and so she was helping me with the finale engraving of these new psalms. And she said, well, why don't you go off and try to write one more? You may as well make it an even 20 since you've got all these tunes. And um, <clears throat> so I went to a, a practice room over in the music building and took my Bible. I stumbled onto 137, Psalm 137, and was drawn to the very strong imagery that's within the psalm. And like most of my music from that period of my writing, it poured out with lyrics and music all at the same time. People often ask me about um, On the Willows from Godspell, since it's also based on the same material. On the willows there We hung up our lives For our captors there I don't think I knew that it was the same text source, that 137 um, was where it came from. But I, of course, I must have been influenced by the sound of it, the 12-8 the, the triplet feel, um, the chord progressions, the, um, I love the acoustic nature of it. And so perhaps those things informed my own setting without me even knowing. Um, I'm a bit of a, a Broadway lover and um, I love melodies that swoop and soar, and um, so when I came up with that that hook of the refrain, it, it very much does have a, a Broadway soaring sense to it, um, and I guess I just like that sound, and it found its way into the piece. We long to play. Let's talk a little bit about piano, um, specifically with By the Waters of Babylon with that piano part. Um, just on the introduction, I wanted to come up with something that was open, um, ethereal, mysterious, um, 
and yet something that had a plaintive or a calling quality to it, something that would want to pull you in. And I find that on the piano, if you use the upper registers and you use a lot of open fourths and fifths, you get that sound. And so that's how that A2 kind of opening came to be. Um, and then I, I'm not a guitarist myself. I tried to learn and failed miserably because I, I could not maintain the calluses and, and the keeping the practice of that up. But um, I find that when I write in the triple meters, I, I have a very guitar style in the way my accompaniments go with the rolling of the 16th notes. And you see that in this piece. I have since learned um, through Marty and some of the other trainers that I've had that the guitar and the piano play in the same register a lot of times. So you have to be careful how much um, the piano dances in the same register of the guitar. But since I create that guitar-like sound, um, I still want the accompaniment to be standable on its own if I don't have a guitar player. So some of that ended up in the chart itself. I find the idea of a melodic hook important, especially if you're writing contemporary liturgical music. Um, and so you'll find in a lot of my songs that lean toward the pop world, including by the waters of Babylon, that there are repeated motives that come back, just two or no, two or three note things um, that stick in your head. Um, it's a great way to memorize scripture. And I think that's why so much of my earlier songs came right from scripture. So Paul has already mentioned this possible, you know, Godspell influence. And, and I want to save the musical theater conversation for just another minute. And I want to start actually with text. So this text from Psalm 137, if you go back and read it, has some pretty <laughs> colorful imagery, I think you could probably say. And the way that Paul matches the sound, the, the music that he's setting to that text is pretty much unlike any other setting of that psalm that, that I know. Yeah, me too. I mean, usually uh, this psalm is set kind of in a, like a dreary landscape or, um, you know, often in a, in a minor key. Uh, but that is uh, definitely not the atmosphere that Paul creates. And, and I think too, you know, both with sort of the the rhythm and the the movement that he creates, this sort of sense of of longing, even even sort of the sound of water flowing almost in the way that he paints here. Um, I think it, even though it's a different sound, I think it really is well matched to that text. I think it it really does paint the text and sort of what's at the core of this psalm, the longing, uh, really quite well. I'm so glad you said that about text painting. I think the verses of this song has one of the greatest examples of text painting in liturgical music when he has that amazing sharp four uh, situation in the vocal and the, the, the piano parts on the by the waters. For whatever reason, that harmony to me sounds like water. And I remember the first time hearing it and just like my head exploding because I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds like water. And it's just, I think it's so, so beautifully crafted. And it must be something that you really were taken to because if I'm not mistaken, that 
sharp four shows up a couple times in some Zach Stahowski tunes. It is absolutely true. I will I will totally admit, whenever you see the sharp four in my songs, it's because I heard Paul <laughs> Tate do it, and I loved it so much. I love the sound of the sharp four chord, and I use this biting um, B sharp four tonality a lot that resolves down to an A chord throughout. I found that to be a great way to represent the tension within the text and some of the drama within the text and um, putting together the the weaving of the harmonies behind especially in the final refrain uh, i'm a sucker for counterpoint and although it's challenging i love the way the voices crisscross one another and and then come together for that final zion see I would have been in my mid-20s I didn't have um, an experience of other settings of this text Um, but then I hadn't really worked at a parish full-time yet so it wasn't like I was seeking them out Um, and as shallow as it is the thing that drew me to the text initially was the image of water Um, for um, Deanna and I were looking for a title for the, this magical collection of 20 psalms that was going to change the world. And so we came up with Songs by the Waters. Um, and that little um, background vocal that happens within my psalm setting, by the waters, it kind of it felt like to me it helped to bring a unity to the, a cohesiveness to the package as a whole. But as far as the text of Psalm 137, um, Again, my my knowledge of scripture and experience within the church was very limited at that time. And uh, so I'm a little embarrassed that the song has become as popular as it is because I I feel like I was very young and naive when I conceived it. Um, But I'm glad that, that it has moved people. One of the parts of the conversation that I found particularly interesting was when uh, Paul was talking about uh, the writing of piano parts. And it reminded me of the conversation we had with Dan Schutte about how uh, the music that he and the St. Louis uh, Jesuits were writing at the time were helping to teach guitarists how to play their instruments. And it seemed the way that uh, Paul was approaching uh, looking at Uh, piano parts that he was writing, uh, parts from uh, like Jeannie Cotter, David Haas, Marty Haugen. Uh, It looked like we were seeing the same kind of development in piano writing. Yeah, that that was an interesting consideration for me and something that I hadn't necessarily really thought of beyond that conversation with Dan about that time period in the church. Like, you know, it, it makes sense to me as a composer that you're thinking about writing for the assembly, right? Um, it's interesting to me to hear Paul talk about, you know, scoring out piano parts that are interesting, scoring out piano parts that are, you know, what you hear in the recording, um, because it, I think it reflects that as a composer, you're also writing for a range of musicians with a range of music abilities in our parishes leading our assemblies in song. And I I thought that was interesting as someone who's very much an amateur musician. Um, 
as a composer, as you're writing things out, how how are you helping people to hone their craft or learn their instrument or play in a different way and really pushing people to be their best? And of course, it's not to say that, you know, prior to Paul, people weren't writing piano parts, but so much of the music uh, right after Vatican II was, you know, a lot of the folk music was guitar-based, that to see uh, piano parts come... Uh, at the level of what like people like Paul and Jeannie were writing, I think was really important to the development of the craft. Well, in addition to that, just a real practical, again, the you get a Paul Tate octavo and the piano accompaniment that you see in front of you is more or less the piano accompaniment you hear on the recording. And that's not necessarily true for, all, for many of the recordings that, that have come before that. I mean, isn't, isn't that true? That's true. Like often uh, you'll go into the recording studio and the only thing that has been put on paper so far is the lead sheet with the chords. And then it's up to the studio musicians to, um, you know, craft what the accompaniment is going to be. And then sometimes, you know, the octavo ends up reflecting later what the studio musicians did. But, you know, that's not always the case. Yeah. And I mean, so so all that goes back to, I think, you know, what I was trying to say before, which is if I'm if I'm someone who is, you know, helping lead my assembly and song and I'm still, you know, growing and learning my instrument, perfecting my instrument, the ability to learn and play what I hear, I think is a real great opportunity. Otherwise, it can be frustrating to to want to play like what you're hearing in the recording and then you're given a really pared down accompaniment. Absolutely. There are licks in Paul Tate piano accompaniments that I use in my songs when I'm playing other people's music all the time. I hope he doesn't mind. I, I That's just the second admission of plagiarism that we've had in this episode. That's all. <laughs> I, I've learned a lot from writing this piece. Um, as far as my years after it uh, as a published composer, if you followed anything that I've written in the last 10 years, you'll notice that the difficulty of the accompaniment is nowhere near the difficulty of By the Waters of Babylon. I had heard Jeannie Cotter's music and was a huge fan and wanted to um, bring some of that sparkle that Jeannie is known for into whatever I was writing at the time. In fact, I remember another psalm setting from this uh, Songs by the Waters collection I chose to write in G-flat just so I could impress my friends and neighbors. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, I I think the accompaniment for By the Waters is a beautiful accompaniment, probably a little too, if I had to do it over again, it would be a little simpler. <clears throat> After showing the collection of psalms to uh, a couple of composer friends who shall remain nameless um, and not really getting anywhere, I submitted uh, the work to World Library Publications. And they were so excited because I had also included a CD that I had done with some of the um, musicians at my parish. And so they wanted to meet with me. And we looked over these 20 pieces and I brought several more. Um, And they were not too scared about the accompaniments. They were excited about the sounds that I was creating. And so there was very little editing done to the scores initially. It was really myself as I started to get more training and more experience um, in trying to hear other parishes play my charts that I started to realize perhaps I should make things a little easier to play um, 
just because not everybody wants to play in a million sharps or flats and have tons of accidentals. So I try not to dumb down my music, but just make it more accessible so that it's more successful at the parish level. I would love to share some um, experiences just like you had. Um, as far as I remember, Jeannie Cotter and the David Haas Gloria Mass of Light was one of the first ones that had a recording that also had a piano score that was really very close to what was on the record and challenging piece to play but it was so fulfilling as a pianist to be able to attack that and try to do exactly what Jeannie did. Here's a story from the pop world for me. I remember, um, again, being a fan of all kinds of music, I bought uh, the sheet music for um, the Whitney Houston song, How Will I Know, which is kind of a cheesy dance song. But if you know the recording well, there's this moment after the bridge and it builds and it changes keys. And it's, it's like the most exciting pop music ever. Well, if you look in the sheet music, you have the music to the end of the bridge, and then it says, play refrain up a step. And I was so disappointed as a teenager thinking, I paid three ninety five for this sheet music, and you're not going to even print the key change out for me. But So anyway, I feel your pain about not having, being disappointed when the, the chart does not match the recording. Whenever I write a piece, I try to keep it playable, um, but to include elements that make it a pulsate sound for sure. Because that's, I think, I've created a sound that started with Jeannie Cotter, but made it simpler and a little bit more playable for the average person. Because Jeannie, her technique is just so outstanding, and I find her music very challenging to play. And so I try to capture um, those sounds I heard, but make them a little simpler for the more average player. As we mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, certainly musical theater is a passion for Paul. It's also something that, um, as he as he spoke about with us, uh, influences his writing and his approach to melody and his approach to text painting. Um, Zach, this is not the first time that we have seen musical theater come up as an influence when we've spoken to one of our composer guests. You know, the last time we talked about musical theater, I got into a little bit of trouble due to some kind of controversial <laughs> That's right. Um, as though as though people could forget, Zach Stahowski does not like Hamilton. It's true, and I'll actually also take this opportunity to go on record as saying I do not like Godspell. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us on, up until this point. No way, to, really. You don't you don't care for Godspell. What's the uh, actually, what's your I, beef with Godspell? Well, I just I am not a fan of Stephen Schwartz musicals. I just you know, and so that I know that that is going to be a controversial statement, and I guess I'll fight people on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you know, Craig Colson, you can come after me about Wicked. That's fine, but um, I stand by it. 
Bob Moore, we await your response. Um, well, okay, so that be that as it may, I mean, the, the fact that musical theater has this imprint and so many of our composers is there. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of our conversation um, with Father Michael Jonkis about no greater love. And, and if you remember in that conversation, Zach, I, I think he, he spoke a little bit about the difference between something being theatrical and something being dramatic. Well, I think that brings up an interesting comparison, Matt. Uh, you know, liturgical music is written to accompany a ritual action. Often in musical theater, the songs are written to highlight uh, some sort of uh, part of the plot or to accompany some sort of action that's going on in stage. I'm not saying that what we do in the celebration of the Eucharist is some sort of uh theatrical plot or anything like that, but the idea that we're composing music to elevate our experience of some sort of action, um, I think uh, the comparison there is why uh, so many uh, liturgical musicians uh, are inspired by the way that musical theater uh, addresses these issues. So given all of that, what you just said, Zach, I mean, when you look at these two different approaches you know, the the common ground here where the two circles overlap between musical theater composing and liturgical composing. I mean, what what do you what do you think it is that liturgical composers take from or learn from the compositional approach in musical theater? Like what's the best that we're learning from that field? Well, I think there are a few things. Obviously, there are a couple ritual moments uh, in the celebration of the Eucharist that are, for lack of a better word, dramatic. I think uh, the the great amen, for instance, that like, you know, this great conclusion of the Eucharistic prayer generally has some sense of elevation to it. And I think uh, the, the better mass settings that have endured uh, have captured that. I think additionally, uh, in terms of the genre of musical theater, there's a lot that we've learned in terms of uh, just um, um, like musical device. So uh, the way we craft melody, uh, the way that we write harmonies, uh, the way that we harmonize uh, the songs that we write. I think the musical theater influence has pulled us further along from the somewhat simpler harmonies that maybe like the 60s folk era held us in for a while. So, um, you know, all these different influences from a variety, not just musical theater, but from a variety of genres have continued to uh, further uh, the way that we write liturgical music. Can a liturgical song be dramatic and theatrical? I mean, are we allowed to do that? That's a, that's a fun question. Um, I don't know. People say that liturgy is really like football or theater. I mean, it's all it's all something that we're doing together and we're creating together. Um, the difference with liturgy, of course, is we're, we're hoping that it becomes an offering or a prayer to God um, and that we keep our egos out of it. It might be helpful to know a little bit about my musical history and how both the, the show pop and church sides all collide in me. Um, I was raised a cradle Catholic, went to Catholic school for many years in and around Atlanta. Um, and at the same time, when I was a sophomore in high school, I began to get into musical theater and ended up doing three musicals before I graduated. 
First year, it was um, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, where I played Bud Frump, the annoying office guy. And then next year, it was The Sound of Music, and I played Rolf and sang 16 Going on 17. And senior year, it was Oklahoma, and I played Curly. So yes, musical theater was a big part of my upbringing. And the production um, of Godspell that I first saw was at the high school where I attended. Um, that was They did that my freshman year before I got active uh, in the drama program. But all throughout high school, while I was doing musical theater, I started to write my own pop music. Um, now, keep in mind, this was in the mid-80s, and so I was listening to people like Billy Idol and Wham! and Rick Springfield, and so I, I tended to be more of a pop, Depeche Mode, Alison Moyet, kind of the, um, the, the dance music of the UK was blending inside of me as well. So putting all that together, I had a very eclectic sense of music. My parents loved, uh, my dad used to be a... Uh, trombone player with the the navy band and so he had all these stan kenton records um the hilos um just interesting music there too so i was being pulled in a music a million different directions as a as a teen um and that's when i started to write my first church music as well musical theater definitely does i think form how i come to write a song just you can't fight what's in you so naturally and I think um, because I have such a passion and love for the music of Broadway, it's it's in me and I can't turn it off. Um, sometimes I will have to tell myself, no, you can't write that major seventh for the cantor to sing um, because I know that it, it's it's going to be challenging and difficult. But that doesn't stop me from trying to find the beauty that I have found in this uh, Broadway music and taking it and applying to the way I write my liturgical music. Even if you just think about musical theater and you think about the different composers that one might enjoy. For example, some people think Andrew Lloyd Webber is nothing compared to Stephen Sondheim. I see things in both of their compositions that I want to pull from and learn from. Um, in the same way, when you listen to any number, you could list any number of Catholic writers and find quality things to, to take from both. And I'm an equal opportunity thief. I mean, I, I think I want to learn from everybody. And now, here is a recording of By the Waters of Babylon in its entirety. By the waters of Babylon We shall cry We shall Shall rest and remember. 
We'll be right back after a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, this is John Angotti. This is Father Jan Michael Jankis. This is Lorraine Hess. Hi, this is James Wolfe. This is WLP artist Mikey Needleman. G'day from Australia. This is Michael Mangan. Hi, this is Ed Eicher. The World Library Podcast, the official podcast for World Library Publications, joyfully serving the singing, praying, and initiating church since 1950. Available on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. Proudly supporting Open Your Hymnal. Welcome back, everyone. It is now time for the Open Your Hymnal playlist. This is the part of our show where we get to play for you additional songs drawn from the themes of today's conversation. Zach, why don't you kick us off with your first selection? Well, Paul had mentioned that he recently released an album back in 2018 called Life Has Changed, Not Ended. And I wanted to share one of my favorite tracks off of that album. It is called God Knows the Very Heart of You. Mm-hmm. 
gives you a future and a hope, and gives you a future and a hope. God will wipe every tear from your eyes. The former things are passing away. In our conversation, Paul spoke about the influence of Jeannie Cotter on both his piano writing and also his vocal writing. And so I want to make sure to include a track from her. So this is from Jeannie Cotter, All is Holy. To everything there's a seed. 
Paul has also had a hand in arranging a lot of music of other composers, um, people like David Haas, Laurie True, Ian Callanan. Uh, but I wanted to share with you some of the work he did on a song uh, by Liam Lawton. And so this is There Are Many Rooms. Live again. 
So we're thinking in similar veins here because I also wanted to choose a song that Paul has arranged, a song written by somebody else. So this is from Lori True's brand new album, arranged by Paul Tate. This is her song, I Will Give You Life. you 
Another one of Paul's frequent collaborators has been Deanna Light, and so we also thought that it would be great to share one of the songs that came from that collaboration. And so this is their song, My Soul Longs for You. As silence longs for singing As sadness longs for joy As sorrow longs for laughter So my soul longs for you As Oh, oh, oh. 
So this has been a little bit of a new album playlist this week because I want to feature another song from another new album from Paul. He is releasing the eighth volume of Seasons of Grace. This is one of his original compositions on that album called Interlude Number 16. Thank you for listening to Open Your Hymnal, and special thanks to Paul Tate for speaking with us. By the Waters of Babylon is published by World Library Publications. The recording you heard was produced by WLP on the album Let All Creation Sing. Links to purchase the songs you heard can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. Production assistance for this episode was provided by World Library Publications. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and Google Play. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Open Your Hymnal. All content of this episode is property of Look Up Here Productions or its content suppliers and is protected by United States and international copyright law. For more information about this show and its use, please visit OpenYourHymnal.com.